Thank you, Fraley and Blake. Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11, although I'm going to be focusing on verses 1 through 8, and we will be picking up in verse 9 primarily in January after our Advent service, just to orient you a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 11, emphasis on 1 through 8, passages on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would love it if you pulled that out and followed along with us. And if you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of and the honoring of God's word. First Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God of grace, this is a precious word from a God who loves us so much that he would leave us with instructions for how to go about our business as the people of God, as your church. Father, thank you that you love our church um, and that it's worth it to, to make our way through challenging passages like this for our own good and for the good of our city. I pray for attentive hearts. There's a lot on our minds right now going into the holiday season. There's a lot of fatigue after a long and difficult academic semester. So we need your help as always, and we ask for it. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Come to find out, this passage is a bit of a sensitive area for those who are in the legal profession. In one corner of the internet, you have blog articles from various theologians and pastors arguing that lawsuits among believers should be avoided at all costs, or at least most of the time. And then in another corner of the internet, you have Christian law firm website FAQ pages that tend to have him a more nuanced position on this Christian lawsuit matter. You'll see all sorts of FAQ articles, so many articles, I was reading through them this week, that read something like, question, can Christians, you know, sue one another? Can they bring lawsuits against one another? And the answer is something like, well, dot, 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 and then on we go. But actually, in a 2020 survey, I think that was overseen 
by the National Association of Evangelicals, 82% of pastors surveyed said that 1 Corinthians 6 does not forbid all civil lawsuits between Christians. Sounds to me like 82% of pastors have lawyers in their congregations, which we do here at City Church. Or perhaps those pastors read those aforementioned law firm FAQs and found them really compelling. Who knows? So what in the world do we make of this passage? What does 1 Corinthians chapter 6 warn against? And why the warning? What we might call the concern behind the concern. A concern that, as we are going to see, is far, far deeper than we might imagine. I'm not sure how well this reference will land with Floridians, but if you've ever stepped into a snowbank and found yourself up to the waist in snow when you're expecting it to go up to your ankles, that's the sort of experience we are in store for this morning. And my goodness, how is it that we will judge angels? What in the world is that? Growing up in California, my family tried to cheer for the Angels baseball team, but boy, was there a lot to judge. Is that what we're talking about here? Because they're still not very good. And should we, should we put this on our email signatures? You know, Mark Jones, Vice President of Development, Judger of Angels, right? That's kind of fire. You'd want to do what Mark Jones says. Two questions this morning in pursuit of wisdom for the body of Christ in resolving disputes, grievances, conflicts, you name it. Two questions. Number one, do we know who we are? And then number two, does the world know? who we are. Do we know who we are? And does the world know who we are? First question, do we know who we are? Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Last week, in chapter 5, we saw the Apostle Paul admonish or warn the Corinthian believers for, for passivity in response to an ongoing immoral relationship within the church that made their pagan neighbors look like saints in comparison. Instead of confronting the man in question, they were sitting on their hands, arrogantly going about their business as if nothing was wrong. And now here in chapter 6, Paul deals with the other side of that same coin. Now the Corinthians are taking action. They are confronting one another and dealing with their grievances. Okay, great. The problem is they're confronting one another in the wrong way by taking their grievances to the wrong place. And mind you, these grievances appear to be a lot less significant than the grievance Paul addressed back in chapter 5, <clears throat> which speaks to the culture of divisiveness and quarreling that Paul impacts in chapters 1 through 4. A man sleeps with his stepmom? No big deal. Carry on, everybody. You took the first sip of my macchiato without asking? I'm taking you to court. In court is basically what Paul is referring to here when he speaks of going to law before the unrighteous. Corinthian believers were taking their grievances to local civil magistrates, we might say, for adjudication. Grievances that were trivial cases, verse 2, apparently related to money and property, 
Thus the references to fraud in verse 7 and 8. Why were these courts the wrong place for these grievances? Or did Paul have some sort of weird bias against the magistrates? Did he sue somebody and lose? This is really important for understanding this text. The issue wasn't the courts. The issue was an identity crisis that was gradually corrupting the purity of the Corinthian church. Corinthians, don't you know who you are? Don't you know that you're saints, verse 2, and as saints, you will judge the world? Don't you know that as saints, Verse 3, we'll be judging angels. Both of these identity reminders grounded in the Corinthian believers' saintliness as sanctified, set-apart people, remember chapter 1, verse 2, point forward to future events. They will be judging the world, and they will be judging angels. All sorts of proposals have been made about what this angel judging might entail. Kyle Dillon wrote a fantastic article summarizing all of these. Google it. Kyle Dillon, angels, see what, you, see what comes up. But in church history, the prevailing view is that Jesus gives believers an accompanying role when he returns to judge the living and the dead a role that may well be in view in Daniel chapter 7, as well as other places, if you recall the series we preached throughout this past summer in the book of Daniel. And apparently, this role will include judging fallen angels who rebelled against God. And just a few years ago, Michael Heiser wrote a book simply called Angels, one of the best books ever written on this subject in which he makes a compelling biblical case. I'll just outline it for you. We won't get into the weeds, but here's the case that A, fallen angels effectively behind the scenes, cosmically oversee pagan nations until those nations are gathered back to Christ by means of the gospel. B, when those nations are fully gathered and Christ returns in judgment, those evil angels will be judged and displaced as rulers, and then C, believers who are biblically co-heirs with Christ will replace those fallen angels as rulers in the new heaven and earth. Church, have you ever considered the understanding who you are, who we are as a body, has to do both with whose we are, who we belong to, and the nature of our future existence and responsibilities when Christ returns. Have you ever thought about it that way? More than ever since I've been a pastor in the past 11 years, I'm seeing people, including some of you, wrestle big time with who they really are. They're trying to discover their true selves, but the search is disorienting and solid answers are fleeting. And the answers might be fleeting in part because we're looking too intensively at the here and the now. We are scrutinizing ourselves to death with a barrage of 
you know, personality tests and all sorts of other things. And we are burdening ourselves with so much pressure to be in touch with our true selves that the anxiety we experience in pursuit of this true self-knowledge ultimately ends up totally crushing us. Behold the beauty, check this out, of knowing ourselves by looking away from ourselves that we might look at Christ <coughs> and know whose we are. Behold the beauty of knowing ourselves by reading the last page of the novel, so to speak, of the biblical story and discovering what's in store for God's people when Christ returns. And then we can use all that information to work backwards and determine how we might operate in the here and now. Paul does something like this for the Corinthians in verses 2 and 3. Listen, if we're eventually going to judge the world in the future, if that's who we are, surely God has given us the resources we need even now to adjudicate matters pertaining to this life. If we're going to be judging angels... I bet God has also equipped us to resolve some minor property disputes. I bet we can figure out how to deal with the professor who leaves his cursor in the middle of the screen whenever he shows a video in class. I bet we can find a way to address your grievances when the coworker that you love so much doesn't cover her pasta when she warms it up in the microwave. We're going to be judging angels. I bet we have the resources to deal with these same sorts of things. Why then, verse 4, are you bringing your grievances to those who have no standing in the church? You're so prideful and self-assured, and yet you are telling me, verse 5, that there is no one among you who is wise enough to resolve these disagreements. And Paul says this to their shame, which is fascinating in light of the comments Paul makes in chapter 4, that he's not shaming the Corinthians, but rather warning them as their spiritual father. Shaming someone has no place in the church. It's typically a malicious attempt to belittle, to embarrass, and ultimately condemn. We talked about this. Paul will have absolutely none of that. But in this case, he is exposing some very significant hypocrisy that if properly seen by the Corinthians in humility will cause them to experience a little bit of shame. Because that's the landing zone for arrogant people like some of the Corinthians who suddenly realize they're not as great as they thought they were. And in those circumstances, the best case scenario is that arrogant people, humbled by fresh insight into their sin, would take their shame right to Jesus in repentance. John Chrysostom puts this so well. Some of you may recall hearing the same nugget a couple of summers ago. Chrysostom was the Archbishop of Constantinople and probably the greatest preacher in the late 4th and early 5th centuries. He says this, Be ashamed when you sin. Don't be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound, repentance is the medicine. Sin 
is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. Satan is behind phrases like, you never need to apologize for being yourself. Especially when that phrase is used covertly, or sometimes not so covertly, to justify selfishness. God, on the other hand, is behind experiences in which we come to the end of ourselves on account of our sin in such a way that we run to Jesus and that we behold his beauty and grace, fully equipped thereafter to leave our sin behind on account of his forgiveness. Satan is behind excessive, arrogant, navel-gazing. God is behind every impulse we have to gaze upon Christ. And as we gaze upon Christ, he fills us with the wisdom and the humility and the graciousness we need to do all sorts of things in the present, even to resolve various grievances and disputes in the church of Jesus Christ. So Chipper, are you saying that I can never go to court or bring a lawsuit against a fellow believer? Is that what we're saying this morning? You may have noticed this, but if not, it's important to clarify that here in chapter 6, Paul is talking about civil matters and trivial ones at that. He doesn't have criminal concerns in mind. In fact, based on what Paul wrote elsewhere, see, for example, Romans chapter 13, he believed that the government had a role to play in addressing criminal affairs. I also don't see enough evidence in this passage to conclude that fellow believers can never take a civil matter involving another believer to court. But it is fair to say, based on the argument in this text, that it should not be a normative practice. It's also fair to point out that one of the motivations for avoiding secular courts is something along the lines of, why in the world would you even want to go there in the first place? Why go through all the hoopla and, and turn your affairs over to authorities who may not share your worldview when you can bring your grievances directly to one another and potentially involve other people in your community, including leaders, when necessary? And notice, by the way, that this fits very well thematically with the process of church discipline that we talked about last week in chapter 5 and in Matthew 18. Sometimes we need to involve local authorities, church. Criminal circumstances certainly qualify, and sometimes major civil disputes as well, if other options have been exhausted. And let me just say this. When we do, we certainly need gifted, well-trained lawyers and judges to oversee these cases. It's certainly very possible to be a wonderful Christian lawyer, a wonderful Christian judge. I know many people who fit into exactly those categories. And so, for example, using this text to keep victims of abuse, and this does happen, but using this text to keep victims of abuse from going to the police would be a catastrophic misuse of what Paul is saying here. But in many other matters, we approach one another with honesty and love. We prayerfully pursue resolutions to our grievances. And when necessary, we involve other people to mediate and to give wisdom. 
if your neighbor starts building a fence that you believe is annexing part of your property, and that neighbor is a believer who happens to be part of your church family, by God's grace, you have all the resources that you need within your spiritual community to resolve this without reaching out to Judge Judy. Because we belong to Christ, experiencing his matchless grace and wisdom that spills over into all of the parts of our lives. And because one day we'll be judging angels together. And mind you, avoiding excessive litigation, it benefits everybody, not just individuals in their churches. A hyper litigious atmosphere is very corrosive socially. So the Church of Jesus Christ has the opportunity to be a redemptive counterculture. Speaking of society, do those outside the Church of Jesus Christ know who we are? Which is our second question this morning. First question, do we know who we are? Second question, does the world know who we are? Look how Paul continues his reasoning in verses 7 and 8. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Why are these lawsuits, as Paul puts it, already a defeat, regardless of the outcomes of the suits themselves? Partly for the reasons we already discussed, the Corinthians were farming out their family business to outsiders, introducing all sorts of unnecessary noise into the system. But also... Their litigiousness was such a depressing public witness. Last week we saw how passivity in the face of immorality harms outsiders who may understandably end up asking, does this represent Christ? What's going on in your body? Is this who Christ is? And they may well dismiss Christ and the gospel accordingly. We've seen examples of this recently when churches or even entire denominations cover up abuse allegations, or at least fail to take appropriate action. And now we see that taking family business to the magistrates has the same kind of effect by another means. You know, you, you, you Christians, you talk about being a community of sacrificial love and mutuality, and yet you're filling up the courts. Does this, does this represent Christ? Which is why Paul raises a few questions at the end of verse 7. Corinthians, even if you've been defrauded on some level and you can't find any internal means of resolving your grievances, you feel as though you've exhausted all of your options, you've responded to the people who've wronged you, you've reasoned with them, you've been patient. Even if you've done all of that, instead of bringing a lawsuit against your brother or sister in Christ, why not go ahead and, and just suffer the wrong? Why not go ahead and be defrauded? Have you thought about that option? Might it be, Corinthians, that absorbing these losses would be worth it for the sake of mitigating losses to your public witness and for the sake of soothing the pain of divisiveness and conflict within your spiritual community? This, I don't get even, 
I get ahead mentality, it poisons spiritual communities and compromises our public witness. And as you can see in verse 8, Paul was clearly concerned that at least some of the Corinthians were operating in that mental space. Here I am asking you to consider making personal sacrifices for the greater good, but it occurs to me that one of the reasons you're in this mess in the first place is that believers in your church are themselves wronging and defrauding one another. It makes sense, doesn't it, that a church community in which believers are regularly defrauding one another would also be a community in which people quickly take action, quickly take one another to court when they believe they've been defrauded. It's fruit from the same tree. A culture of arrogant self-concern perpetuates both of those things, and that culture was spreading like gangrene among the Corinthians. A culture that was making their spiritual identity real foggy in the eyes of those in Corinth who weren't following Jesus and therefore not a part of the church. Did the outsiders really know who the Corinthians were? especially whose they were? Or were the immorality and the litigiousness getting in the way of all of that? We can't know exactly what was happening on the ground, but the fact that we even have to ask that question is tragic, isn't it? City Church, how's our public witness? How's our public witness? individually, as a church family, as a denomination? How about the collective witness of faithful churches and denominations around the country? Do outsiders, so to speak, those we are desperately praying would one day be part of us, do they know who we are? Do they know whose we are? One of the under-discussed byproducts of spiritual amnesia, forgetfulness pertaining to our true identities as God's people, is a steadily building current of conflict that sweeps through church families. Why? Because we stop living like those who have been, verse 11, washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, we stop living like that, and instead we start living like our old selves, unrighteous people, captured by arrogant self-interest and all kinds of immorality. And as grievances naturally emerge among us, we take them to all of the wrong places. Maybe we don't file lawsuits and and take one another to court. But perhaps we take one another to the courts of gossip, to the courts of social media, which in my mind is a far greater problem in our day. Because that's what you do when you're trying to win, when you're trying to benefit yourself instead of making sacrifices for the sake of reconciliation and peace within the body of Christ. And in doing so, we harm one another and frankly bludgeon our public witness. Our non-believing neighbors and family and co-workers listen to and watch this kind of thing and ask, 
Is this really who you are? Does this kind of behavior represent Christ? Perhaps in these polarized times, especially going into another election year, we need regular reminders. And this is sort of where the, I guess the preaching is in the last three minutes here. We need regular reminders that Jesus Christ was wrong and effectively defrauded. I mean, if anyone in human history had the right to be aggrieved, surely it was him, the perfect one who suffered for our sin. And yet he suffered anyway, rather silently, I might add. See 1 Peter 2. In fact, if we have time, Here's 1 Peter 2, 22 through 24. He, that is Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Believe that, and you start living like the silent sufferer. Forget that, and you get really, really noisy. So, Chipper, we never pursue justice in the face of real grievances. Is that what you're saying? That's not at all what we're saying. And in fact, the law that God gave to the Israelites is concerned, you might know this, in very large part with rectifying injustices when they occur. But the way in which we pursue justice will look very different. Different than the ways of the world. We'll be more concerned with pursuing justice for other people than foregrounding and protecting our own rights. We'll have less time to even think about suing one another in the body of Christ because we'll be taking up the cause of injustices affecting the vulnerable and the marginalized. And our passion for justice will be balanced with real humility when we remember that Christ was mistreated on our account. It's quite the ensemble of moral instruments, isn't it? Real passion for justice, bathed in other-centered focus and humility. An ensemble that our world desperately needs to see right now all too often, you know this, we get justice in lockstep with arrogance and self-assuredness, or we get nothing at all. But Christianity is on an entirely different plane. And so we have this really powerful opportunity for public witness founded in that head-turning ensemble that ultimately points people to Jesus and brings real healing in our day. Recently, my youngest daughter gave me, and I quote, a Christian hug attack. And that is honestly not a bad way to describe what I'm calling for here. Passionate obedience and pursuit of justice bathed with other-centered humility for the good of our church and the good of those who are looking on at these proceedings and contemplating Christ. Amen.